Yeah, no, that's okay. It's such a good question. I mean, really what I want people to hear is that recovery is possible. And I think there is always hope that it really, no matter how long you've struggled, no matter how you think that, you know, you're the one person who can't ever get better. It's just not true. Like recovery is possible for everybody. And there is so much freedom in recovery that the eating disorder is lying to you when it tells you that staying sick is the better option. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear the conversation that I had with Rachel Milner, who is a licensed psychologist in the state of Pennsylvania. And um, Rachel, she recovered from an eating disorder. So I thought that you guys would be interested to hear because she also recovered as an adult. And um, so you'll you'll hear uh, quite a bit of her story in there as well. But we talk about um, other things as well. We talk a lot about different dynamics in family-based treatment and when it's used for adults so maybe um, parent-child relationships when the child is grown up and also um, partner relationships when the uh, the person with the eating disorder is married or has a partner and the dynamics that go on there we also get into um, eating disorder treatment though and the degree of fat phobia that exists within eating disorder treatments and so pretty interesting conversation a bit later on in the podcast about those things i hope that you enjoy it as always the first question that i asked rachel was to tell us a little bit about herself so here's rachel i'm a psychologist i'm a clinical psychologist um also a certified eating disorder specialist um and i've been in the field about 12 years now, um, both working in private practice and then also um, working in an outpatient program, um, an eating disorder treatment program, and um, got into the field um, through probably a combination of things. Um, When I was doing my training in graduate school, just happened to do a lot of training in um, college um, counseling centers where unfortunately there was a lot of eating disorders that were presenting. My supervisor at the time specialized in treating eating disorders. So I got a lot of experience working with her um, and then also have recovered from my own eating disorder. So it was something that felt really kind of close to my heart and a passion of mine. And also that I was able to see a lot of the problems in the field Um, and so wanted to do this work and wanted to be able to do this work differently than I had seen it being done. Oh, so that's interesting. Um, I'd love to know what differently from you'd seen it being done means. Yeah, you know, I think that for the most part, people in this field are very well-intentioned. I don't think people go into a helping profession with an intention of doing harm. Um, So I I think people are coming from a good place, but I think there's a lot of potential risks and and downside that happens for people in the field um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think that oftentimes people are drawn to this field because of their own experiences, which can be great because if you've been through something and you've recovered and you're on the other side of it, 
it really allows you to understand in maybe a way that people who haven't gone through it wouldn't be able to understand. Um, but if you're not really through it, if, if you really are still struggling, um, I think that there's, you know, potential problems in that. I also think people in the field are sometimes struggling with their own weight bias um, and stigma attached to people who may be in larger bodies or beliefs about people in larger bodies. And there's so many risks involved with that, both in terms of misdiagnosing um, or not diagnosing at all when somebody has an eating disorder and is in a larger body or prescribing weight loss to people, um, which is problematic on, on so many different levels. In your, in your own recovery from your eating disorder, what do you think were the biggest, maybe well-intentioned errors that were made? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one was not recognizing how much I was struggling until I, you know, quote unquote, looked sick. Um, so I think that there was an opportunity, um, for people to intervene and help before my eating disorder got as bad as it did. And I, I think that there was a lot of missed opportunity that was really just based purely on appearance, which we know that you can't tell by looking at somebody how sick they are, how much they're suffering. Um, but I, I think that that happened um, quite a lot. When I was struggling with binge eating disorder and was in a larger body at the time, um, a lot of focus on needing to lose weight. And then as I my body size was changing, a lot of positive feedback. So um, not expression of concern or is everything okay, but really like, good job, you're doing something right, um, which just set the eating disorder off even more. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of the anorexia, there was a lot of discussion around the why, which, you know, I think maybe some of those conversations at times were helpful, but in the meantime, those conversations weren't getting me better. So it wasn't allowing me to take the steps that I needed to take in order to make progress in recovery. And what do what sort of steps do you think would have been more helpful or did end up to be more helpful for you? You know, um, I was actually, so I was a young adult when I was struggling with anorexia and I was getting ready to, I had actually sent the deposit in to go away to treatment, um, to residential treatment, and then read an article just by chance um, about family-based treatment, about FBT. And it just, I remember so clearly, like it hitting me one day, like, this makes no sense. I'm going to go thousands of miles away from my family and friends to get help when I could just move home and have people who were there and willing to help. Um, So that's what I ended up doing. I moved home. And my parents really supported me even as a young adult um, in the refeeding process. Um, and ultimately, that that is what helped. Like there was other work to be done. So it's not that it was just as simple as eating and everything was fine. But I couldn't do the other work without the nutrition. Like the nutrition had to come first. Um, yeah, that's... I, if you know anything about me, you know that I'm all about that food first. Yes. Um, yes. But I do. It's, 
it's um, really interesting um, that you're similarly you also as an adult took learned about family-based therapy and thought oh this could work what was it what was it about that article that you read that actually made you think this could be a solution for me yeah it really was the the sort of realization of why would I I go so far with people I don't even know to try to help me get better when I could do this in a much more familiar, supportive environment. And, you know, this was in early days of FBT where really like I was sort of putting together like a makeshift team who didn't even really have any FBT training. So I was really just like kind of floundering through it, trying to figure out how to make this work. So certainly made a lot of mistakes along the way and probably did things in in ways that took longer than it needed to. But it allowed for a lot of healing to happen, both in terms of getting more nutrition, my brain healing, my body healing, but also being able at the same time to work on the relationships with my family and with my friends, which had all been impacted by the eating disorder. And what do you think were the hardest parts about that process? Hmm. Um all of it, you know, it's a really hard process. And and I, you know, I don't like to minimize that for people because I think people are stronger than we give them credit for and that people need to know what to expect. So I always try to predict for clients that I work with, like what they can expect in this process. Um, and it's hard. It's really hard. I think um, for me, the hardest parts were both tolerating the idea of eating more and then tolerating that my body needed to change and that that felt at the time like the worst possible nightmare. Um, It ended up being the best possible thing, but in the moment it felt like the worst. Um, What do you think were some of the things that helped you get through that time? Mm. Um, Just the space that it was okay for me to say, I don't want to do this and still do it. Mm -hmm. So being able to express like, this is really awful. And every single part of me is telling me not to do it. I'm still doing it, but I need to be able to tell you how much I don't want to do it. Um, So that was helpful. It also helped to feel like I didn't have a choice. So in those moments where Like I felt like I just couldn't force myself to eat. It was very helpful to have somebody else there saying like, you have to do this. There's, there is no other option. Um, Or for me, I struggled with like just resting. So somebody saying to me, like, you actually need to go lay down right now and take a nap. There's not another option for you. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's interesting. I didn't, I used the principles of FBT, but I didn't have, anybody anybody I didn't have any family doing it I was just taking them and doing them to myself so uh, very different I think that there I I still don't really know how I managed to do that it was very hard but at the same time I think that like you said you know when you were saying I need to express that I don't want to do this Mm -hmm. I felt that I was actually because I was on my own in my flat staring at a plate of food telling myself at the same time 
you are not leaving that table until you've eaten this plate of food. I could then scream and cry and have a tantrum on my own in my flat and still not leave the table until I'd eaten the plate of food. And I think I was almost able to do that easier than if I had had someone else there with me thinking like, because I wouldn't want them to be overly concerned. I just needed to scream my head off and then put my fork in my mouth and maybe Mm. scream my head off again and then put my fork in my mouth. I think that if there'd been someone else there, I would feel um, that I had to moderate that a bit more for their sake. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's such a good point and a reminder like that the process, there's features of the process that are similar for most people and it can still look so different because everybody's recovery is unique to them. And so what one person is needing may be very different than what somebody else needs. So I think like we have these sort of key components of what needs to happen for somebody to recover, but how that is actually put into place for a particular person can look very different. Absolutely. I think that individualizing the process is is important for anybody recovering from an eating disorder, but all the more so for an adult because everybody's circumstances are different if you're an adult some people can go and move back in with their parents and that is fantastic if you Mm -hmm. can do that some people just can't do that that's not an actual option they don't have that there they don't have family close whatever the reason so we have to we have to make it so that they can still be successful with you know not just saying well, this is the way that you do that. So the fact that you can't go back and move in with your parents means that, well, you're screwed. You know, because right. it doesn't, It's it may mean that it's going to be more difficult. It may mean that they have to get strong in different areas and different key areas, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that it's undoable. And I think it's just opening up the process and saying, we can, we can figure this out. You know, we're smart people. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you work mostly with children or adults? Um, I do both. So I spend part of my time treating adults and part of my time treating like children and adolescents. Okay. Um, was there, so what were the differences there? I only work with adults and I only had anorexia as an adult. So Mm -hmm. what's your insight on that? The differences? Yeah. I mean, I think some of the differences are what you just touched on that for, adolescents and and children, for the most part, you know, they have parents or caregivers who are really able to take on the responsibility of helping their child to eat. So there is somebody right there who is able to say, you know, nothing is more important in this moment than eating. And we're going to sit here with you and support you in eating. And we're not going to do anything else until the eating happens. And that can be a really, really difficult process. It can be very emotional. There can be lots of screaming and yelling and and throwing food and all of that. But there's a dynamic between a parent or caregiver and their child that is just different than an adult trying to recover. Even an adult who has parents to help support them in recovery, the dynamics are just different. It's a different relationship at that point when you're an adult. Yeah. Um, You know, I... 100% 100% would go back if I could go back and do it again I would 100% move back in with my parents mm-hmm. um, I was too much of an idiot and, and too <laughs> stubborn and too sick actually it's yeah. what it comes down to I was too sick to mm-hmm. allow that and uh, you know I want to strangle myself because it would have it would have made it I think it would have just made the whole process um, a lot easier I also think it would have been quite healing for my parents to, yeah. if I had allowed them in on the process. Um, 
So do you, what do you, what do you notice in the relationships between, say, children and parents, um, you know, maybe even adults and parents mm. that are in on the process? Yeah, I mean, I think especially with with children and adolescents, like one of the things I often say to parents and caregivers is that this process in the beginning goes against our natural instincts as parents because we can't help our kids get better without causing upset. Like we have to upset the eating disorder. And in the moment, that's going to look like upsetting your child. And most parents and caregivers spend a lot of time and energy trying not to upset their kids. And so having to do something that on the surface at least looks like they're upsetting their child is really difficult and it's the only way to get kids better. Um, So I think in the early part of that process that can be really difficult for parents and caregivers to see their child be be so tortured by this illness um, and to know that in order to get them better, it's going to appear like they're causing more pain. So having to really keep reminding parents that they are doing the right thing by insisting on nutrition and not allowing their child to restrict or to avoid eating, but really standing firm. And that by showing their child that they are stronger than the eating disorder, that's actually causing their child so much comfort. The the child just can't express that in the moment. Um, yeah, so the sort of, um, you, do you mean by that the parents' levels of confidence sort of give the child confidence? Absolutely. I think that the child needs to believe that the parents are stronger than the eating disorder. And even though all parents, I think, have moments when they doubt that, that it's important that when they're with their child, they're acting as if, like pretending that they know that they're stronger, even in the moments that they're doubting it. Because ultimately, they are stronger. You know, parents are stronger than the anorexia. Yeah. Um, it's such a messed up illness, though. And it's so um, difficult. It's difficult for most of the time as, as people that have suffered from the illness to understand it, let alone somebody else. And, you know, I think that for most parents, like you said, they don't want to cause their child pain or harm. And so, of course, they back off when it feels like that's happening. And they can't do that. It's it's learning that they can't do that. Do you ever have parents that aren't prepared to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there are certainly parents who struggle with that. And, and the vast majority of the time, they're struggling with it out of a really good place, you know, that they it's just so painful for them to see their child suffer. And it, it's hard for them to understand the idea that actually what they're perceiving as increasing suffering is really helping. Um, So, you know, we do a lot of work talking to parents about that and educating them on the process, really trying to help them to understand this illness um, and so that they can feel empowered to to help their child. Because really, even in situations, and of course there are situations where kids do need, for whatever reason, to go to treatment, whether it's an inpatient unit or residential kids are still coming home, you know, so after they're done in their in the treatment center, they're going to be back home with their families. So there's still work to be done in terms of helping parents learn how to support their child. There's there's not anybody who's going to be a better advocate for their child or better able to help 
fighting the eating disorder than than a parent or caregiver. Yeah, and so um, switching back to sort of your experience experience there with family based treatment um, mm-hmm. as an adult, then mm. um, I'm interested in that process. Um, you know, first of all, just like we were talking about um, parents of children there, what 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 was your parents' reaction to what you were asking them to do? You know, I think that like a lot of parents, my parents blamed themselves and felt guilty and felt like they had done something wrong or or that it was their fault that I was suffering so much. So I think my parents at first were really grateful to have the opportunity to do something. Um, so feeling like, okay, like there's something concrete that they could do to help me get better. Um, I don't think they were prepared for how hard it was going to be. And certainly there were moments of their losing people losing temper and being frustrated and, you know, having to walk away and then regroup and come back. Um, but I, I think my parents initial reaction was really just appreciating that they could do something because they were feeling so helpless and were really panicked, you know, that, that they were going to lose me. So I think that was their initial reaction. It's this funny dynamic I work with, um, you know, like I have this Slack group, it's for adults in active recovery. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's over a hundred adults in there and some of them are working with partners there. They, you know, using maybe some of the recovery guides of, of how to use um, family-based treatment with your partner and adapt it for that. And mm-hmm. it's a, a lot of the time what comes up and what people struggle with and they, they ask about in the Slack group is, I, you know, I'm asking my husband to help me do X. So I'm asking him to help me eat more at dinner. But then when it happens, I'm really mad at him and I yell at him or the eating disorder does anyway. Mm -hmm. And so now he's scared and he's not as willing to, you know, be assertive and try and make me do this thing. And so the, the problem there is that the person with the eating disorder is saying, at the same time, I'm asking somebody to do something. And then when they do it, shouting at them or being mean or having an eating disorder tantrum. Mm-hmm. It's this really difficult dynamic to play with. Yes, absolutely. It's so confusing for both the person with the illness and the people around them because they're saying one thing and then acting in a totally different way. But, I mean, I think that is sort of like that. that is the challenge of anorexia that ambivalence that you know that struggle of part of you really wanting to get well and then part of you really not wanting to let go of the illness and so in the moment when somebody is trying to encourage you to eat wanting to fight with everything in you against that person because eating feels like the last thing you possibly want to do yeah, it's it's so incredibly different different for how we can feel when we're talking about what we want our long term goals to be recovered from this illness, and being able to understand. Okay, in order to do that, I have to eat more food, and right. in order to eat more food, I'm going to have to recruit help. I'm going to have get my husband. I'm going to tell him to do this, and all of these great intentions. And then when it comes to the moment, like brick wall, right. <laughs> um, and. I hate you for even asking me to eat that um, mm-hmm. that sort of that sort of tantrum. And then, 
it's I think that a lot of the struggle of the, is though is making the person who is helping understand that it's okay if those tantrum happens they will happen in fact it's a good sign because it means that you're getting somewhere you mm -hmm. just keep on pushing the next day don't be don't back off from it don't don't let it scare you into submission or not trying as hard um which doesn't make sense especially when it's not even a parent-child relationship but it's uh it's an equal partnership relationship so difficult yeah it, it is it absolutely is it, it kind of shifts the dynamic of the relationship but i always you know think about we ask the people in our lives who care about us to help us and support us in all kinds of ways and we support the people we care about so this is just a different way that partners and friends can give support. And I do think it requires a lot of conversations outside of mealtime because mealtime is not going to be the time for a productive conversation to happen. Yeah. So I think a lot of conversations outside of mealtime about how can you be helpful in the moment? What what are you going to do when I'm screaming and yelling and saying I'm angry and don't want to eat? Like what's the, the most supportive way to respond in that moment? Yeah, and I think that um, what I often say to people is that you you also have to sort of take responsibility for knowing that you are very likely to start screaming, crying, and not wanting to eat, mm -hmm. and saying to that person, "I'm when you tell me this, I'm probably going to freak out, but that's okay. You know, it's ju mm -hmm. just keep on." And also being very quick to as soon as because we get these emotional hits like huge waves of panic and terror and fear but they often go pretty quickly afterwards as well at least yeah. i used to find that i would go high very very fast but then mm -hmm. i'd come down again from it increasingly fast as well and it's being mm -hmm. able to come down off that and then my husband might be sort of looking at me sort of like shocked wow what just happened and then i'd be like oh it's okay i can eat now let's carry on <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's being able to recognize that this is an emotion. I'm having it. It's going to pass. And then when it passes, I'll try and ease again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that the feelings don't last forever. And when you're in the midst of panic, the belief is it's never going to stop. So being able to remind yourself that it does stop. It stops every time like that. No feeling lasts forever. There's a beginning of it and there's an end to it and being able to ride those waves. Yeah. Um, and so did, um, since, since recovering, um, mm -hmm. how, um, have you used what you learned from the process of doing so? Do you, do you still use that, um, actively now or, you know, how, how did that sort of process of moving from using FBT, um, with your parents to coming away from that work out? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I do use FBT in my work, you know, particularly with, with kids and adolescents. And then with adults, um, I mean, I, I actually think that part, one of the many things that, that is wrong with sort of the way that we treat eating disorders or is problematic is probably a better word than wrong, but problematic is I think we actually move away from FBT too soon. Like we sort of have this idea that like 18, 19 year olds are supposed to be independent and so we're treating them as adults. And, and I think that there's a lot of opportunities that are missed for young adults to really be helped by FBT. I, I mean, I, I hope that that's starting to change a little bit and that FBT is available to people into their 20s. Um, 
but I certainly incorporate it into my work now. Um, in terms of just kind of being a recovered clinician, I I really pick and choose when to share that. I, I think that I always want to share it in moments that I think it's going to be helpful to the clients that I'm working with. Um, and so I don't just tell everybody that I'm working with that I've had the experience of recovering because I, I don't know that it's helpful to all people always. Um, but I do think that it is helpful to many people. And when I feel like it's going to be helpful to the clients that I'm working with, I will share with them, you know, oftentimes just that I've been there and that there is another side. I think that there's very few stories of people who have fully recovered. So oftentimes when I'm telling somebody that I've been there and I've recovered, that's the first time they've ever heard somebody say full recovery is possible and I know it's possible because I've done it. It's difficult to, the, you know, it's difficult for people to, um, I think, really understand what full recovery is as well um, when they're so um, caught up in the illness that themselves. And um, I think that also one of the problems is that they, there's a lot of people that are, like you know quote unquote um inverted commas recovered but then mm -hmm. they are still exhibiting eating disorder behaviors um and i think you know we spoke earlier about the degree of fat phobia coming into things as well so somebody may say well i'm fully recovered but then they still got a lot of fat terror in their life and you know and i i just i don't think that that's fully recovered personally Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I think that you you can't both be fully recovered from an eating disorder and living in fear of weight gain. Like those things can't coexist. Their full recovery has to include an acceptance of whatever size your body is meant to be. And for most people, our bodies are not meant to be real small, like most people are, you know, bodies, there's lots of body diversity and, and people are meant to be all different sizes. So I, I know I personally struggle when I hear or see that the, the vast majority of people who are saying that they're recovered are seem to be living in smaller size bodies. And it makes me wonder, like, are, are they really fully recovered? Um, and where is the body diversity in the recovered community? Because um, we know that size diversity exists in the general population, which means it needs to exist and does exist in the recovered community, except if people are still suppressing their weight. Yeah, now that's uh, a really interesting one. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's such... It's really a sensitive topic and, and it's sort of hard to talk about because, you know, I don't want to, I don't know how to define for somebody else what their recovery is and certainly don't want to be judgmental of what other people's recovery is. I also think we've got to be able to talk more openly and honestly about this or we're really doing people who are struggling a disservice because we're not actually representing the possibility of being recovered. 
Um, and so I, I think we, we tend to not talk about it because we don't want to offend people or upset people. But I think that's a problem. I think we have to talk about it and, and be real about it, that there are likely a lot of people who are saying that they are in recovery who really are not truly recovered. Yeah, and I think that um, this is where it gets problematic when people go into um, treating eating disorders um, when they are not fully recovered themselves. And this is a really difficult one because it can, you know, it, it, again, as you said, like how, who is anyone to judge another person's degree of recovery or not? Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so we're re- relying on people to really be honest with themselves and recognize that if they're doing this work and are not fully recovered, there's a real risk of doing harm that people who are struggling with eating disorders are really going to are going to pick up on the fact that their therapist is still struggling or is holding on to weight bias or is suppressing their own weight or is not able to eat freely and, and flexibly. So I think that, you know, there's there's a responsibility on the clinician to really make sure that they're recovered. And, you know, that's tricky in a culture that, you know, promotes dieting and promotes weight bias. So, you know, how do you assess your level of recovery in a culture where there is a certain amount of body discontent that is normative? And um, just especially when, say, if if somebody goes into being, oh, I I want to be a dietitian or a nutritionist, and I took a nutritionist, I think I have a nutritionist degree somewhere, (laughs) and um, all it did, and I actually took that before I was even in recovery, um, long story, Mm -hmm. you know, typical sort of person with anorexia going into every food-related business that she could possibly think of going into. Um, I was very sick when I took that nutrition qualification, Mm -hmm. but it made me worse. I can tell you there was nothing in there that was friendly to recovery from an eating disorder. I think it put at least an extra two years on the top of my having taken that. And, you know, they made us keep food logs and reduce the amount of fat in that everybody was eating. It was completely fat phobic, you know, basically never buy a full fat yogurt, never buy anything like cheese. You know, all of the things that now are my biggest dietary staples and all of the foods that helped me recover from my eating disorder were completely written off. Um, It's not helpful. The training is what I'm saying. The training for a lot of these things is incredibly fat phobic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've heard, I have a lot of friends in the field who are nutritionists and dietitians and I've heard from them that their training, that not only is there not really any training at all about eating disorders, but not even like training in health at every size or intuitive eating or anything along those lines, that it's very much about sort of weight loss and, and diets and this idea of quote unquote healthy eating. Um, and you know, I wish I could say psychology was different. I mean, I I think there's not the same focus on food, but there's certainly, at least for me in my training was, I mean, I think we covered eating disorders like for one class in our abnormal psychology course. Um, and 
that's it. You know, there, there really was not any other training unless you were purposely seeking it out. But, you know, eating disorders are prevalent. And so even if you're not specializing in treating eating disorders, somebody's going to walk into your office who's struggling with, the, with one. And the fact that you're not going to have an ability to recognize and diagnose that is problematic. It means people are suffering longer and going longer without a diagnosis than they need to be. And we know that the longer somebody's struggling, then the, the more challenges there are with getting well. Yeah, and I wonder also, so if somebody um, does w- walk into whatever kind of doctor's or therapist's office and, and you know, they, they have an eating disorder and so that person then tries to draw on whatever training they might have been given for an eating disorder when really what they should do is refer to somebody that's a specialist in eating disorders rather than even try to pull up whatever they think they might have learned five years ago in, like you said, like a couple of hours of class or something, um, which could be erroneous anyway. It could be some, you know, based on let's get to the bottom of why they're doing this to themselves rather than let's get some food into them. Um, You know, do you think that that actually sometimes that small amount of training can do more harm than good? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that you're right on that a lot of times then there's an attempt to intervene that's an inter- incorrect intervention. I also think, you know, if if somebody presents with sort of a stereotypical um, presentation of anorexia, um, there's a greater chance that a clinician is going to recognize it as anorexia and and maybe at that point refer out. I think there's a lot of fear, which actually is probably in this case a positive thing. So if somebody is recognizing it as anorexia, knows that they don't specialize, I think most of the time they'll know enough to refer out. Where I really worry is somebody who who doesn't present in a stereotypical way. So somebody who might be in a larger body, somebody um, who is not expressing, you know, body image concerns or, or fear of gaining weight or, or isn't presenting in that way, that those people are, are not being diagnosed and then are not being referred out. Um, and certainly, I think outside of anorexia, even, you know, with binge eating disorder, um, that people not recognizing the that it's the eating disorder that needs to be treated and trying to address weight, which is just so problematic on so many different levels. Um, so I, I think there's the risk of harm both when people try to treat it and then and aren't properly trained and then also are not able to even make the correct diagnosis um, because of their own bias. You know? Yeah. And um so um, you mentioned their sort of binge eating disorder and, and trying to treat the person's weight rather mm-hmm. than to treat the eating disorder. I, I feel like that is something that um, people that are in the eating disorder field or very much understand binge eating disorder or talk about it a lot get. And there are some dietitians out there that have a um, non-weight focus and um, a sort of health focus and different things like that that's not focused on the weight there's there are people out there but they're few and far between that really can genuinely take that kind of focus it's it's difficult isn't it i I think that it's just completely for for the majority of people say your average doctor that they just 
don't even have a clue about a, a non-weight focus. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really horrifying, actually. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I see like talks or, or topics within the eating disorder community where it's listed, you know, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and obesity. And I mean, that word itself is so stigmatizing and it's not something to treat. We're not treating body size. We're treating an eating disorder. People have binge eating disorder at all different body sizes. And there are people of all different body sizes who don't have eating disorders. We're not treating the size of somebody's body. And even in the eating disorder community, that that gets messed up where, where the focus becomes weight. And, you know, there is so much risk in that, both in terms of the stigma and the harm that we know comes from people trying to diet and from um, professionals promoting weight loss. Yeah, and the I think that isn't it something it's uh, 45% of people with binge eating disorder do not present as overweight. Um, right. So it's more it's sort of more or less 50-50. And I, I think that I have said that to a doctor, actually, well, my doctor, who's lovely, but she's not an eating disorder specialist. And she just looked at me like I had spoken to her in like a foreign language or something like what, you know, how is that? That can't be true. Um, it's, it's, yeah. so, it's, uh, you know, I, we talk about it as if, well, everybody should know this, but I get not everybody knows this. It's not obvious, I think. Um, and so it's the education piece really, isn't it? Yeah. It's so fascinating to me, especially in the medical community, because I think the medical community in general focuses on evidence-based care. So they they think about what's the evidence and we're gonna use the evidence to guide the treatment. And yet when it comes to weight, they do the total opposite. So they're looking and, and focusing just on weight and then trying to intervene with interventions that are, are not helpful and have lots of evidence proving that they're harmful. And yet that's still what the medical community goes to. No, so I mean, what side, um, can you give me a, uh, um, example? Yeah. So, I mean, we know, so even if we wanted to, to say that if somebody's in a larger body, that the idea of weight loss is reasonable, which I don't agree with, but if a medical provider wanted to, to go with that and, but we know that over 97% of the time when we're looking at two to five year follow-ups, any weight that's lost, people regain. And yet medical providers over and over and over again prescribe diets. Oh, uh, yeah. So it's just like the diets don't work stuff. We know this. We know this. Right. <laughs> I think even even my dad, I think he has heard the diets don't work rumor. And he's a 70-year-old guy living in the middle of England that, you know, doesn't certainly doesn't listen to this podcast <laughs> and <laughs> and um certainly doesn't read anything else on eating disorders and i think it even filtered down to him because it's yep. been that mainstream so why that's a great question why are people still prescribing diets when we know this doesn't work i mean but is that just because they don't know what else to say I, I think it's because the weight bias in our culture is just so prevalent that the thought of saying to somebody in a larger body that 
your body is not a problem and let's work on addressing the stigma in the culture and not stigmatizing your individual body is a revolutionary concept for most people. Um, I think that, well, you, I think you're probably right that most people have heard this idea of diets don't work. Um, I think where people get a little lost is the idea that weight is not actually predictive of health. So there's still this idea of, but health, we've, we've got to intervene because of health and ignoring the data that tells us that there are other things that are far more predictive of health than weight. So Rachel, if there was, um, say one thing that you, anybody listening that maybe has mm -hmm. heard that you would want to, want them to know or want to say to them, what might that be? I know I've put you on the spot there asking you that. I didn't give you any preparation, but. Yeah, no, that's okay. It's such a good question. I mean, really what I want people to hear is that recovery is possible. And I think there is always hope that it really, no matter how long you've struggled, no matter how you think that, you know, you're the one person who can't ever get better, it's just not true. Like recovery is possible for everybody. And there is so much freedom in recovery that the eating disorder is lying to you when it tells you that staying sick is the better option, that that it's just it's 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 the biggest lie that, you know, it's it's convincing you that somehow the eating disorder is going to keep you safe or make you special or you know, a, it's your identity and it's too hard to let go of. It, it's just not true. There's so much freedom in being recovered and so much to this life that that you get to have an experience when you step to the other side of the eating disorder. And, you know, so I really like what I always want people to realize and to hear when they're feeling hopeless is that there's hope. Um, Rachel, if people want to find out more about you, where can they do that? Yeah, so they can find me online. Um, it's rachelmilner.com. Um, Milner is two L's, M-I-L-L-N-E-R.com. Um, you know, I'm in a, a private practice um, outside of Philadelphia. And then, you know, like I had said earlier, work um, in an outpatient program uh, treating eating disorders. And I will link to Rachel Milner's website in the show notes. You heard what she said there, didn't you, about recovery is possible. And that means for you as well. Um, something I get a lot from people is they sort of think that they're broken, that they're the unicorn, that recovery is possible for everybody else, just not them. That they're the ones that if they start eating and actually allowing themselves to eat as much as they really want to, they're the ones that it will go completely wrong for. Um, and it's not, that's what your eating disorder is telling you because that's what mine told me as well. It, we all think that it's us, that we're broken, that we're the ones that won't recover. But recovery is inevitable actually, so long as you keep trying. It's not just possible, it's inevitable. Thanks for listening and until next time, cheers and cheerio.